Section 7 of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 The Utilitarian Optimism of John Stuart Mill. Part 4 how far the hopeful eagerness with which mill welcomed these two great movements especially cooperation has been justified by results it is beyond our limits to inquire this must be left to those who can read the signs of the times our present concern is to note that we find here in a fresh form the problem which for ever returns upon mill these same unsparing estimates of the herd which bred distrust of popular majorities in politics have to be reckoned with here also is there reason to think that the rank and file of the working class will be equal to the difficult task of reorganizing the national industries to any considerable extent upon cooperative lines can they command the requisite capital can they be trusted to choose the true masters in industry to encourage enterprise to provide for saving and above all to impose those restraints upon the improvident increase of their own numbers without which cooperation is in mill's view as impotent permanently to improve the lot of the labourer as our socialism or capitalism to this momentous question however mill's answer is an emphatic yes but this affirmation is confident only upon one condition the paramount condition that the citizen be educated it is here we reach the pith of the whole matter convinced that a great gulf parted men as they are from men as they might become convinced that in the dispensation of the future the individual both in politics and in industry must carry his own fate in his own hands it was to education that mill turned to bridge the gulf and to equip the citizen and the workman for his vocation given education and just laws this is his postulate this indeed he says elsewhere is not the principle but the sole remedy if understood in its proper sense utilitarianism had always reared believers in education it produced none more confident than mill it is in truth difficult to rise to the full height of mill's optimism here for however well grounded the hopes which democratic reformers repose in education the miracles of education are gradual it is inevitable that more than one generation must pass before its results can genuinely leaven the national mind and will political power on the other hand may be given swiftly a single parliament may suffice the point that emerges is obvious where is the security that the democracy may not ignorantly and disastrously blunder in the fateful interval whilst democratic education is still an imperfectly realized aspiration and democratic power an accomplished fact nor is this the sole misgiving that must haunt the reader of mill for even if education had gone deep and far in the democracy is there reason to think that it would bring with it those provident restraints upon population and that resolute adherence to a standard of living which on mill's analysis are more vital far to the future of the body politic than even the wisest use of democratic legislation 
or the success of voluntary organization it is doubtful if there is anything in mill adequately to reassure us here he has himself to blame neither the individual citizen nor majorities can be said ever to recover from the stabs dealt to them by this foe of their own household yet there are considerations which in justice to mill's inherent reasonableness it is but fair to bear in mind one is that so far as the political problem is concerned he takes securities weight to the educated voter representation of minorities and such like against abuse of democratic power the other and far the more important is that the education from which he hopes so much is to be understood in the widest sense it is not bounded by the three r's or smatterings in science or lessons in history and political economy or that instruction about political and social duties which some would in these days add to the curriculum it is besides an education in and through the exercise of social duties that sort of training in short which comes of experience of workshop of trades union of cooperative association of political committee in a word of participation in practical life this is a vital point schooling even when it includes not only instructions about duties but the more important incitement to perform duties which comes of example backed up by emotional and religious appeal these are but preliminaries in the education of the citizen they do but prepare the way for that growth in the capacity to perform civic duties which comes of having civic duties to perform nor can any teaching about duties however excellent suffice for if it be paradox it is also truth that no citizen can be proved fully fit for the gift of self-government either in politics or industry at the time when he first receives it this for the simple reason that it is by actually using the gift that he makes himself practically fit for receiving it self-government can never be fully justified by its advocates before it is given it can only be justified convincingly by the behaviour of its recipients after they have received it there is risk here of course democracy still raw to its work whether in politics or industry may blunder it may blunder fatally and believers in democracy must face this fact but per contra without running some risk of this kind the education of the citizen his education in political habit sentiment responsibility and judgment will never be so much as possible this must be borne in mind in judging mill his countrymen as he paints them may seem but poorly fitted either for political or industrial power but it is just by the exercise of political power and by self-government and industry that he believes they will be made capable of better things even the menace of overpopulation loses its terrors for him in face of this large view of education for he did not doubt that with this kind of education would come a heightened standard of comfort and with a standard of comfort that fear of losing decencies in which economists have found the real preventive check it may be that he was over sanguine here he perhaps underrated the strength of the instincts and passions that people the world 
and by consequence overrated the comparative influence of ideas it is what men think that determines how they act so runs his own avowal none the less it is not to ideas alone that he trusts in this connection but always to ideas in alliance with the discipline of life and experience nor must we forget that with all his enthusiasm for education mill never staked his faith in democracy on the coming of a day when the initiative in betterment was to come from the rank and file let there be no mistake here this apostle of democracy was in certain aspects one of the most aristocratic writers of his generation the initiation of all wise and noble things so runs his deliberate conclusion comes and must come from individuals generally at first from some one individual the honour and glory of the average man is that he is capable of following that initiative that he can respond internally to wise and noble things and be led to them with his eyes open footnote on liberty chapter three the whole context is a vehement plea for the highly gifted and instructed one or few End footnote. the sentences are startling and sweeping and if we read them apart from the general context of doctrine we might fancy we had somehow strayed from the gospel of democratic radicalism into the pages of anti-democratic hero-worship they remain in any case a proof that mill knew how to value leadership but mill is not carlyle we must press those significant concluding words with his eyes open and remember that in the last resort it was not to the heaven-sent hero that mill looked for social salvation but to the vigorous self-assertion of the individual man this is the theme of the essay on liberty which mill thought was of all his writings the one most likely to be read in the years to come it would be needed he thought to stem the despotism legislative and other of collective mediocrity but this memorable essay would receive scant justice if read only as a protest against a meddlesome social despotism it is far more like the areopagitica by the side of which lord morley justly places it it is a trumpet call to thought speech and action a passionate positive incitement to self-assertion and self-realization this is the greater thing even were laissez-faire controversies forgotten the essay would remain one of the books to which readers would return as men return to the springs of mental and moral life it is in truth just for this reason that it is so well fitted to serve the more limited and negative purpose needful as direct arguments against paternal government may be especially in days when so many dread a coming socialism it is not necessarily the militant controversialist who does most for the cause rather is it the writer who can fire his fellow-countrymen to fill their lives with thoughts words and deeds inherent strength of individual life is after all a better security than skill of argument against a possible tyranny either of law or of public opinion and it is this that in the pages of the liberty mill knows how to inspire convinced that strong and progressive individuality is the essence of all high civilization he catches up from von humboldt the phrase 
individual vigor and manifold diversity and sketches an inspiring picture of a society vigorous in thought eager in discussion strenuous in action rich in varied modes of life fertile even to eccentricity in experiments and living and peopled by citizens in whose energetic characters is reflected the many-coloured diversity of their many-coloured environment it is this this enriched and positive individualism not merely the limited individualism of hands-off of which mill is distinctively the prophet and be its flaws and fallacies what they may and we shall see that it has some these cannot destroy its substantial and permanent value as a democratic ideal there is no true citizen of a great and powerful state but must long that his country should be in some sense a microcosm of civilization he cannot rest content be the arguments for international specialization what they may that his country should be no more than the workshop or emporium or studio or school of science of the world his legitimate aspiration grounded firmly on the idea of nationality is that it should gather within its borders a many-sided life in which all the great permanent ends that make life worth living should find their place just as little can he rest content that his country's religion literature science politics family life wealth should be severally the peculiar monopolies of groups or classes or castes he must wish and strive so far as the iron law of division of labour admits that both he and his fellow-citizens should come into vitalizing and uplifting contact with all these large interests and ends which his country embraces in its larger life this and nothing less is the aspiration of modern democracy the democracy as we shall see of mazzini and green for democracy is not content that society should be diverse and the individual members of society vigorous it insists that individual vigour must assert itself and find its nutriment in and through the manifold interests religious as well as intellectual political as well as industrial and commercial which it is the glory of a democratic state to offer to even the humblest of its citizens and it is because there is so much in the essay on liberty to feed and foster this ideal that it will remain one of the great books of modern democracy it is time however to add that it is the very fervour with which mill urges this passionate individualism that has laid him open to his critics we see this if we turn to the chapter upon liberty of discussion for that well-known chapter is not merely a plea for liberty to discuss it is a vehement incentive to leave nothing undiscussed coupling thought and discussion so closely as to make them all but one and indivisible it makes scant allowance for the fact and who will dispute it that whereas excess in thinking is an extreme to which few indeed seem prone to run there are unhappily not few but many to whom excess in discussion is irresistible one recalls a passage in lord morley's rousseau in which in a vivid picture of fashionable france in the eighteenth century he tells us how in these vivacious circles 
the highest things were brought down to the level of the cheapest discourse and reminds us in the context how boswell used to ask questions which johnson declared were enough to make a man hang himself lord morley is not of course to be taken as suggesting that the highest subjects are not to be discussed ill would it fare with philosophy and science with theology and ethics and not least with politics if it were so discussion is the recognized instrument for gaining and testing and clarifying convictions as the greeks put it dialectic is the path to definition but it may none the less be suggested that there are seasons and circumstances when some things are better left undiscussed and that god virtue and the soul are not again to return to lord morley's words to be made everyday topics for all comers there are moreover questions of casuistry not least of all political casuistry these must needs come in the course of experience and when they do they must of course be met and dealt with it does not however follow that they are to be lightly raised or cried upon the housetops for a practice of casuistical discussion habituates the mind to the idea of the violation of the laws of life its tendency is as burke puts it to turn our duties into doubts at the very least it gives the casuistical case a prominence which clothes it in a kind of generality to which as in its essence an exceptional thing it is not entitled tyrannicide to cite one of mill's illustrations is an interesting topic the historian and the moral philosopher must needs discuss it so must the ordinary citizen when some political assassination has startled the world but like many another act involving grave departure from ordinary obligation it cannot be constantly discussed without making the condition of the body politic dangerously valetudinarian in the essay on coleridge mill himself asserted that it is a prime condition of political stability that there should remain some principles that are not to be discussed and called in question footnote dissertations volume one page four seventeen in all political societies which have had a durable existence there has been some fixed point something which men agreed in holding sacred which wherever freedom of discussion was a recognized principle it was of course lawful to contest in theory but which no one could either hope or fear to see shaken in practice which in short except perhaps during some temporary crisis was in the common estimation placed beyond discussion End footnote. those who can may be left to reconcile it with the words and still more with the spirit of the chapter on liberty of discussion nor is it easy to admit that discussion plays so overwhelming a part as mill claims for it in vitalizing convictions and in saving mankind from the justly dreaded deep slumber of a decided opinion it is at least a reasonable contention that convictions are vitalized even more by the moving and critical and memorable experiences of life experiences such as mill himself underwent in his mental crisis than by the keenest dialectic and most untiring controversy who can doubt that there is room in life though there is little room in the liberty for a type far removed 
from the irrepressible disputant of mill's pages others too there are among the walks of homely life shy and unpractised in the use of phrase words are but under agents in their souls when they are grasping with their greatest strength they do not breathe among them footnote wordsworth prelude and footnote end of section seven